There are many, many other ways for people who don't want to meditate to also train their focus. Simply doing sport in a mindful way without earbuds in, running without headphones, for example, and noticing the nature that you're running through or even the streets. And there are many creative projects that you can engage in that also train focus, even cooking without listening to the TV at the same time, right? So yes, focus, I do believe, is partly an individual responsibility, but certainly when you're surrounded by a leader and a team that model the behavior of having a focus practice and sharing what their focus practice is, which is becoming more common, is certainly helpful in inspiring others to also find their own focus practice. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Welcome to Superhumans at Work by Mind Valley. I'm your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and before we get started, tell me, if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Would it be your body, your career, your relationships? Thankfully, you don't have to choose. As a Mind Valley member, you'll get instant access to the wisdom of world-class personal growth teachers and programs that can evolve you in every way for just $2 a day. Are you ready to make a change? Start transforming your life today at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I am here with the lovely Michelle Natalia Moore, who is a former Big Four partner, organizational focus builder, body wisdom teacher, author, speaker, and so much more. A couple of things you should know about Michelle is that she is the founder of Mind Equity, a management consultancy bringing 21st century tools and practices to the forefront of team performance. What we want to talk about today is actually the future of work and speaking particularly around the word focus. What are the things that are happening in our environment? What is happening with the tools that are available for us that are either making us more productive? We're going to go against that word in a little bit as well. You're going to see maybe it's not the best one to use, but how do we actually really nurture our own well-being, make sure people are innovating and we're being effective in the workplace? And Michelle is an expert at this. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Michelle, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jason. Now I used the P word already in my introduction. So I wanted to jump there because you said something very interesting. The word productive, which is something that people might assume that is what you work in. You're probably people are saying, oh, are you a productivity consultant? But you're like, no, no, the P word has a bit of dirt on it. Can you elaborate more about that? Yes. So I grew up in a world of the P word, which is productivity. And since moving to Canada about 10 years ago, I really became aware and somehow part of this community around human-centered design, human-centered change. And I learned that productivity is really a word to classify how machines are operating. And so I made the switch from productivity to effectiveness. And what's the difference? effectiveness is about getting the right things done. And it's confusing because I remember feeling super productive shooting out 100 emails a day or something like that. But we all know that email isn't the most productive form of value creation. So So we need to make sure that we're working on the right thing. And you make a fair point. I mean, if all you're doing is just optimizing what you're already doing, you're not taking a step back to figure out if what you're doing is the right thing in the first 
place. Now, I know you get brought into these big organizations in the corporate world to kind of do assessments, audits, as well as be able to make some shifts when it comes to how effective they are. What usually is happening when they bring you into the organization? Like, is it at a moment of crisis? Is it because they're looking for opportunity? What's usually happening before you approach a new client? So generally, there is a lag in well-being and effectiveness and innovation, kind of all three at the same time. One may be more prominent than the other, especially in the last year and a half, the decline in well-being or employee overwhelm or burnout or being on the verge of burnout because of this blurring of work time and personal time. And what is interesting is that these three areas of wholeness around the organization, right? This idea of if we are a knowledge worker firm, if we are thinking for a living, we love to work overtime. We're overachievers anyway. We love to create value and we love to multitask. And so we get into this spiral of overwhelm. It also then impacts our ability to innovate. And of course, we're not effective or as people still say, productive. So I believe there's a real holistic approach to looking at this concept of attention management, which is the solution to these problems, all three in one. And attention management, we are impacted by five different things in the workplace in terms of our individual attention and our ability to harness collective attention for value creation. And those five things are very simply what culture cultural aspects of our team are impacting our ability to focus? What about the tools that we're using? What about the design of our virtual environment and our physical environment? What about the balance between body and mind, between our ability to tap into both intelligence of the team and wisdom of the team? And then, of course, focus is a skill. Mm. I want to dive deeper because most people would look at just focus as the one thing you want to work on. But what you're saying is that when it comes to actually attention, it can be expanded with a lot more criteria. And I'd love to maybe expand on that because you speak particularly about culture being a huge element. What have you noticed in businesses that you work with where they're trying to increase the focus, but you've really noticed maybe the culture was something that was preventing that? What would be an example of that? An example of that is this undecided behavior, behavior that we're all engaging in as a team, like instant response on Slack constantly. We're always in a million channels and we're instantly responding. When I say undecided behavior, it means we haven't as a team intentionally set out to, oh, it's a rule that we all need to be in this mode of instant response and feeling that everything is super important. So it is a destructive behavior because nobody's kind of decided when is instant response important and when is it not important? Because of course, if we're in an emergency situation for a client or a life death situation, the easy example is doctors know the difference between instant response and when you don't need instant response. When a life is on the line, it's simple. It's instant response. We get in, we save the life, and all the attention goes there. But as knowledge worker teams or professionals and organizations, we don't quite tune in to what is instant response and what isn't. And we're not sure 
what our company is demanding of us either, because there's no policy around it. Hmm. I love the doctor example because that becomes very clear on something that's an emergency. There's a life on the line, but how often do you see yourself working in an organization where they have the similar types of demands? Because it definitely feels like a life or death situation for anybody who's been accustomed to needing to respond immediately. Is this a condition that we've just all accepted and we're just drawn to it? Like, why is it that we get so much anxiety when these messages come in? Yeah, Jason, I think it is a general condition that we've accepted because of the way society has developed, in particular also in the last 10 years. We ourselves want Amazon Prime and immediate next day delivery. So that's an example of us as consumers maybe acting in this way that we want this instant gratification. But then a lot of kind of psychological aspects also play out in this. Sometimes we have fear of missing out if we're not in a particular conversation, like a Slack channel, I'm just going to use because one of my clients says we have the problem of Slack on crack. <laughs> and these teams talk about we're just afraid if we don't participate all the time that we are going to be seen as not collaborating or not part of the team. And certainly, sometimes there is clarity around how we do instant response with clients. But I'm also noticing that in particular in the professional services world, communication protocols with clients, when they are set out with the client, when the client signs an engagement, then we know, okay, let's adapt to the culture of the client we're serving and recognize their well-being. And let's inform the client too of our own well-being as a team and then jointly decide, okay, what is our communication protocol and when is instant response required? So that's just a very small example of how you can start to tone down this anxiety around how am I supposed to act? Because the default is I'm scared, I better respond. Yeah. It's interesting because there's one of our live attendees here, Lisa, who's talking about, you know, where do I find a company's policy on that? And I would assume that there's more than likely not even a policy on this. People probably just assume it. It's never really being discussed. And as you're saying, it's almost our consumer behavior is almost forcing us into being hyperactive in the way we communicate in the workplace because we're getting Uber Eats. Everything's accessible. Everything's instant. So what you're saying is that we need to consciously put safeguards in place. And once you start doing that, are we seeing boosts in productivity? Are you seeing measurable results with companies you've applied this with? Absolutely. Because the first realization is, how are we defining value? How are we defining the activities? Which activities actually contribute to value creation? And then let's put protective measures, some guardrails around those so that we really are able to tap into our brain power and protect this very valuable asset attention. Then let's look at the transactional or the more logistical tasks and understand, okay, which of those require instant response? Or for example, can we do email one hour a day in a batch between 4 and 5 p.m. and that's it? Or if we have certain clients that we know need emergency assistance, well, then their email might be allowed to come in. And so in answer to your question though, Jason, I don't see any companies that have holistic policies or approaches around this topic of instant response. It's just evolved on its own. And when teams start to intentionally think about it and actually have a collaborative discussion, so that it's not coming from the top, I advocate for a team discussion on how do you want to design 
your work around this one little behavior called instant response. And then a lot of different ideas come out and different teams decide on different things, depending on who they're serving and what they're doing. You know, it's interesting because for me, when I was in the workplace, I think I got lucky or maybe I was giving myself a chance to be more selfish, but I've actually never really had this problem. I've actually probably been one of the most proactive person that did not respond. I had this policy for myself, which was no notifications about anything. I'm working, you know, in publishing or in marketing. And I was like, there's nothing that's a life or death situation. So I really disactivated. And we even had the Slack, we had WhatsApp, we had emails. I can maybe count on one hand the amount of times that something really needed to be read in time, but they usually would pick up the phone and call me if it was really a crisis. And it's just given me so much peace. And I've actually had to train a lot of members on the team about how, hey, if you calm down and start focusing, as you say, on the things that really add value, as opposed to just being busy for the sake of busyness, it really started putting the energy into things that actually mattered. And so I'm definitely a big advocate for something like that. And then it brings me to this other point that I know there's multiple elements about your attention in the organization, but you speak about focus as a discipline itself. And so I wanted to dig deeper into that. And what is it that I can take responsibility for myself? What is a skill that I can nurture to have more focus? Is it something I practice? What does that look like? Yeah. So focus is a skill that can be trained as opposed to attention, which is actually a function of the body, much like the respiratory system. And you pointed out something really important, Jason. First of all, your example of you model for your team how to behave for better attention management. So the leader is very important in modeling behavior and also looking to a leader and asking them, well, how do you train your focus? We know that mindfulness meditation is still growing. Most people know what it is. Many people are now meditating. And that whole industry teaching meditation is a great place to tap into to train your focus. So absolutely, I'm going to say meditation. But there are many, many other ways for people who don't want to meditate to also train their focus. Simply doing sport in a mindful way without earbuds in, running without headphones, for example, and noticing the nature that you're running through or even the streets. And there are many creative projects that you can engage in that also train focus, even cooking without listening to the TV at the same time, right? So yes, focus, I do believe, is partly an individual responsibility but certainly when you're surrounded by a leader and a team that model the behavior of having a focus practice and sharing what their focus practice is, which is becoming more common, is certainly helpful in inspiring others to also find their own focus practice. But I also believe that especially for the knowledge worker population on this planet, that if their organization were also to offer formal focus training paid for by the organization, or at least many companies are from the wellness perspective, paying for free subscriptions, right, to meditation apps or something like that. But it's not just a wellness thing. It's also a, how do we create better value by training our focus? So I think both are responsible. 
Well, you give me an extra excuse. I actually have fun. I just started doing jujitsu. So Brazilian jujitsu, and it's one of these martial arts that you have to grapple and you, you're doing all these things. And I realized this is something that's great for training my focus because you have to be so present when you do it. This also brings me to a point where, you know, as we're seeing an evolution of organization, and just before this call, you were saying shifts have been happening for a decade on how organizations are approaching the well-being of their employees to maximize effectiveness or I'm afraid of using the word output. I feel like that's probably a step even further from productive, but to make employees more effective, there's been a shift because, and I feel like in my case, I'm biased because I get to interview thought leaders, people like yourselves that have written books that speak on topics that really are talking about the future of work and the practices that really bring the benefits. So I wanted to ask you, when you approach organizations, are they very willing to apply this? Is there data that you present to them so that they can say, hey, yes, we should do focus training. Yes, this improves the bottom line. What are some of the things that you present to clients and are they very enthusiastic about adapting this? So the level of openness depends on how old the company is, the average age group of the company. And I am working with an engineering team right now in the United States. And engineers tend to be wary of these things that appear very new agey. So they might roll their eyes when they hear mindfulness. So in the case of engineers, I will bring in statistics on the recent Deloitte burnout survey, that burnout has gone up from 70% to even close to 80%, the risk of burnout rather, since COVID started, for example. So bringing in statistics around the problem of wellness, bringing in statistics that also support why focus is key for good innovation. And of course, again, why is it good for effectiveness? So in that population, I would definitely bring in the stats. And there are loads of stats in all flavors that are easy to find. But in younger companies, like I work with a young tech team that listens to podcasts like this, many of them already meditate. So they're very open to new practices on how to tap into team wisdom and doing things collectively in a new way that they've never done before. Before we continue, I just want to tell you a little bit about Mindvalley membership. For all of you personal development junkies like me out there, growing in one area of your life just isn't enough. That's why we made Mindvalley membership to bring you the best personal growth programs on the planet so you can evolve every day in every way. Whether you want to get crazy fit, build a business, or manifest more money in your life, there's a quest for that. And now you can access every single one for just $2 a day. So if you're striving to become the best self and live the life you deserve, try out Mindvalley membership at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. Well, I'm glad to see that there's at least a lot more adoption, especially in the younger organizations. But if say I'm in one of these older ones and I'm realizing that my well-being is being sacrificed, maybe I'm feeling that edge going towards more burnout. I'm listening to these ideas. I notice that the culture itself might not be necessarily a place that's nurturing more focus. It's making me have more difficulty getting that attention for the things that really move the needle because there's constant disruptions. And we had one of our Mind Valley members ask a question on a call we had recently that really was being boundaries not respected from an individual who was in a leadership position. Do you have particular intervention methodologies, assessment methodologies for people to be able to understand, hey, this is something I can work with versus, hey, maybe this is something I need to move away from? 
Yeah. So often when I'm brought in by HR, there's the well-being slant. But when I'm brought in by the leader of a company, you already have the leader on board with all of this. And so that's pretty easy. But the example that I recall is when I had HR bring me in and then the finance director was also involved and HR was a real champion of this. But when it came to looking at the data and then talking about what shifts could actually be made culturally, then finance, and actually in this case, the CEO really pushed back because they said, we're not a fluffy organization and let's just focus on shifting these data points in this very more productivity-driven way. And all I can do at that point is meet people where they're at offer examples and case studies of why this has worked in similar organizations and see if I can generate a bit of a crack where they open up a little bit. But sometimes it's just down to one team will do it because the leader of that sub team will be ready for this more holistic work and viewing things in a holistic manner. And others have just got to let it go. Hmm. We touched a bit on the culture at the beginning of this call that I think is super important. You talk about how we can nurture the focus within ourselves as well. Body wisdom. I know you mentioned that this body wisdom is also something very important when it comes to nurturing attention. How does that interlink with us being able to be an organization that really brings value more when we talk about body wisdom? Yeah. So this is a term that I use to kind of cover the collective practices from yoga to sport, to meditation, to insight practice, and to creativity practices, or even play that is used very much in innovation. And so anything that gets us to tap into the tactile, even journaling is a body wisdom practice. Anything that gets us out of our heads and more into the physical felt sense of What is this experience like to be in the body? That's what I call body wisdom. And when I talk about body wisdom with teams, this refers to the balance that we need to get between mind and body as a collective and between tapping into wisdom and intelligence. So what's really interesting is we are very good at cognition. We are very good at talking and having a lot of meetings. We're very good at data analysis. Actually, you've heard the term analysis paralysis, and that is growing in COVID, I would say. And when teams realize, wow, we're only tapping into our intelligence, we're not actually tapping into our own individual intuition or wisdom, and we're not tapping into collective wisdom, which is that holistic view coming from using both the right brain and the left brain equally, instead of defaulting to, oh, the left brain is king. That is when people realize, wow, we don't have a lot of practices that we do collectively as a team that actually allow us to tap into the wisdom of our collective body. And then they get interested. Oh, what tools are out there? What practices are out there? What could we do? When I hear you say this, the only thing that comes to mind is Mindvalley had, back when I worked there, we had these team retreats. And during these team retreats, we would have these exercises that would make us have 
more connection with everybody else on the team. And it was very interesting because a lot of them, it wasn't like, look at the quarterly goals, set some quarterly goals, priorities, all that. That would happen at a strategy meeting. But at the team retreat, it was all about doing these practices that allowed us to connect more, to have more empathy for each other. And right after that team retreat, which would take us out of the office for maybe three days, you would see this incredible boost in productivity that would last for months because there was a higher level of trust. There was a faster pace of people's ideas people collaborating more. It seems like this is exactly what you're speaking of, right? Correct. And the question is, how can we embed some of these practices in our innovation process? And so the reason I find this so fascinating is because I learned a practice at MIT at the Presencing Institute. I'm a teacher of a body wisdom practice called social presencing, which allows teams to innovate differently and to add a physical practice that they do as a group, modeling how they sense a shared challenge in their bodies and in their collective bodies. And because it comes out of MIT, I paid attention to it. Because if it had come out of New Age School number five in California, I would have said, oh, that is something I can't assign my name to. But because it was in this environment of MIT and the Presencing Institute, when I discovered it six years ago, I thought, wow, this is incredible. This is the merging of two worlds, of the analytic world and of the sensing world. And here is a way to deliver a really cool practice that teams can use several times a year, not just on team retreats. So it's exciting stuff. Once this research starts coming from these big schools and big renowned publications, I think that's really what's going to be shifting it across the board, which now that COVID happened, obviously we're on the tail end of it, I think there's a lot of pressures that were put on organizations such as everybody shifting remote. Now it's, is it remote or not? There's still a lot of these tensions happening. What are you seeing for organizations when it comes to making a shift back after COVID? Has it accelerated progress or have we taken a step back? And are you hopeful for what's coming in the next few years? So right now I see mostly confusion, mostly just discussions on, well, what is hybrid Do we need an office space? Do we go fully remote? So we're in this process of trying to figure out what it should be. And I think when teams ask me, well, how should we design this? I go back to the starting point again. Okay, let's look at what is the value you're creating in your organization for the world? And let's look at value holistically. What is the impact we're having? Not just value in terms of how much revenue are we generating. But when I say value, I mean more the purpose and the impact we're trying to have in the world as a team. And what would make our teams most effective? Can we do this fully remote? Does that make sense for the value and the impact we're trying to have in the world? Or does it not make sense? So let's go back to linking everything to impact. I'm going to use this word purpose, which especially in the social innovation space here in Canada, or even people working in the climate change space, or clean electric vehicles or clean energy, those are types of organizations that are very clear on their purpose and the impact they want to make in the world. And then it's easier for them to answer this question, well, what's best for the team and what's best for the impact? So those are the conversations that are happening, or that should be happening, I would say. 
And I know you had two other elements that came from getting your organizational attention into place. You had the environment, and I guess this environment can be decided based on what's the answer to the ultimate purpose or impact that they want to do and seeing, hey, does the environment need to be in person? Can it be continued remote? And that'll depend organization by organization. But I guess this would be an extra prompt that during this confusion, it's more than likely because there's still some (laughs) impact unclarity happening across the organization. Because once you get that clear, it seems like a lot of the other things become much more clear in the process. Does that make sense? It does. And I think the easy thing to do is simply to look the financials and make a decision based on the financials. And so to me, that is a bit narrow-minded. But when you look at environment design, right now we are all in two spaces constantly. I'm here with you in a space called Zoom. I'm in a virtual space with you. And it has design elements. And then I'm also in a physical space. I'm in a room. I'm in a building somewhere on this planet. And what I think is being ignored is the design of the virtual space. So not only what tools are we using, are we using Zoom or Microsoft Teams, but how are we training people to be in meetings? Do we have trained facilitators who know how to hold space for creativity to arise, for full inclusion, so that people feel psychological safety. You do hear psychological safety battered around as a term a lot these days, but I don't know a lot of companies that are really focusing on, well, how do we design the virtual space, especially if we're going to decide that our teams are 100% remote? And then how often per year do we actually meet for a retreat in person so that we do have some human connection? And how do we develop human interconnectedness online? There are practices to do that, but that is less spoken about. Hmm. Michelle, thank you so much for your time and joining me in this conversation. I feel like what we've really done is make sure that people can go back and start realizing that there's some big questions they need to ask themselves and go and find the answers for themselves. Because once you start actually answering the questions that were risen through the conversation we had today, you start having more clarity and you start having less anxiety about the ambiguity or the adopted norms that have just naturally crept within the organization. And as a recap for people listening in, we really started talking about one of the biggest issues that we've noticed in the workplace, especially with a shift to digital, shift to remote, is this constant anxiety about what are the things that we do just to keep busy? What are the activities that happen, such as responding to email, And that just never has been clarified on how we're supposed to communicate. It takes away our focus. It takes away our attention and it minimizes the impact that we can make as an individual. What I love about the framework we covered here is just understanding that out of the five things that we can look at, we can take responsibility for nurturing our own focus. What are you doing to bring more focus into your life? Are you being mindful in all the activities you do even outside of work? And so pay attention and maybe run a little audit within your own life, such as how do you cook? Do you put music? Do you listen to the TV at the same time? Simple activity, but again, you're nurturing lack of focus, not opportunity for focus. When you walk, when you run, can you be present? Can you pay attention to what's around? These are ways that you can actually nurture your own ability to focus so that it can translate to better attention within the workplace. We really went deeper within the culture and its responsibility. And the biggest thing here is leaders within the organization must lead by example and have a look at what are the assumed policies and challenge them. So if you do have this need of responding to emails so quick, 
then go and challenge with your management team and be like, do we have a policy on this? Do we have an expectation we can set? And what boundaries can you bring on for yourself as well? We talked about the body wisdom, which are all these practices that you can bring to be more in tune, more connected, and realize that when you place these types of practices within yourself and in your organization, you can nurture effectiveness and innovation in the process to make you more effective in the workplace. Your environment will be designed if it's remote or in presence based on the purpose that you identify. This was an amazing point that we covered towards the end. Get clear on that purpose so you can design an environment that really supports the goals that the company is really trying to make. Michelle, thank you again so much for all the information. This was a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And for all of you tuning in, I want to make sure that everyone can self-assess what is their level of focus go to mindequity.ca. There is a quiz that you can do based on Michelle's tool. The link is going to be in the show notes, and I would encourage everybody to go and do an assessment themselves so they can go deeper into understanding how do I become someone who is at the cutting edge of the future of work and really enabling the most of my potential. This will be a tool that will really help you self-assess. Thank you so much, Jason. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you haven't signed up already, be sure to check out Mindvalley membership. Besides getting unlimited access to our top rated programs and trainers, you'll also join an incredible supportive community on our new Connections app. This is basically a global campus where you find like-minded friends, mentors, and accountability partners from around the world online or get together at local meetups. If you want education that connects you with kindred spirits and transforms you from the inside out, join the tribe at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman today. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.